arms and welcome you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamualaikum, it's Zara here. We're going to try something a little different with this episode. A few years ago, Zarar, who is a key member of the Sacred Footsteps team, went on an incredible journey. Having already spent considerable time in Iran, he decided to set out alone in search of the tomb of Imam Ghazali. In this episode, Zarar reads his beautiful article recounting that journey. You can also find the written version of his article on sacredfootsteps.org. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim He's known by many names. The most famous and perhaps the most profound is Hujat al-Islam, proof of Islam. Abu Hamid Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Ghazali died at the age of 53. It is not an understatement to say he was and still is the most prominent Muslim philosopher, theologian, jurist and mystic of Sunni Islam that has ever lived. He lived a thousand years ago in the city of Tus, under the great Soljuk Empire, and spent much of his life teaching and arriving when he believed was a lost Islam. Al-Ghazali is a giant. I will not attempt to summarize his life nor his works. I leave it to the curious listener to research and understand the importance this man plays in our lives, particularly if one is of the Muslim or Christian faith. Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic theologian and philosopher, was heavily influenced by Al-Ghazali. Al-Ghazali, at the peak of his career, held the most prestigious and most challenging professoral at that time at the Nizamiya Madrasa in Baghdad. Put simply, no other Muslim during his time held the authority he did when it came to the matters of Islam. At the peak of his career, he underwent a spiritual crisis that would see him take a decade-long break during which he would travel the Muslim world. He performed the Hajj and then spent years working to resolve what he saw as an illness of his ego that had turned him into a hypocrite. He would return to his old life, but only after he had undergone a major transformation. He left as a teacher and returned as a man focused on helping others avoid mistakes he himself had made. In his later life, Al-Wazali was even seen and revered as a saint. Dear friend, writes Imam Al-Wazali, your heart is a polished mirror. You must wipe it clean of the veil of dust that has gathered upon it, because it is destined to reflect the light of divine secrets. In the summer months of 2018, I traveled to Iran under the pretext of studying Farsi in Isfahan, a city known as half the world, Naqsha Jahan, a title well earned given the city's size, rich history and majestic Islamic architecture. My plan was to spend two or three months in Iran, where I would study but also spend a lot of time in the mosques and madrasas. My own spiritual crisis had begun years earlier, but only now was I able to gather enough strength and will to consider where I would be at the end of it. I spent four weeks in Isfahan, and by the end was incredibly eager 
to travel to the corners of Iran. I visited Yazd, the city of the Zoroastrians, Shiraz, the city of love and Hafiz, Tabriz, and many others, including Hamidan, where Ibn Sina, or Avesana, is buried. I was accumulating hundreds of miles, but I was oblivious to the benefits being bestowed upon me. They say travel makes you wise, but I had only learned the wisdom of this everyday world, a knowledge that meant little to me. After six weeks in Iran, my Farsi had improved and was fluent, but I had not learned how to decipher the meaning of my own journey in Iran. This was a spiritual journey for sure, but one without preparation or plan. I thought of myself and my comforts constantly, but only romanticized with the idea of true self-sacrifice. I had one goal that now seemed almost impossible, to rid or destroy as much of my ego as possible, a concept or technique used to spiritually elevate oneself that all the great Islamic mystics and Sufis preached, including Rumi, Muhammad Iqbal, and of course, Al-Ghazali. I had fallen in love with Persia, and while I did manage to drown my ego in a shallow pond, my love for Farsi and the people who spoke it distracted me. I would walk hours on foot in unbearable heat to find faraway mosques, bazaars, and narrow streets where I could find some meaning. I was not aware, but I had begun to take on the soul and spirit of the Persian so deeply that Iranians who would meet me could not understand why a European would do what I was doing. They would say, You came to Iran to study, but why? You want to explore our country, but you could be in Paris or London. I laughed on the inside, but outside I merely nodded politely, because how does one translate the agony of their soul to those who want to find a worldly meaning to our actions? For instance, how could I expect an Iranian taxi driver who works night shifts to understand that I, a comparatively rich European, was here to shed my ego? It felt false. I felt ashamed. Was I merely indulging in spiritual tourism? I arrived in Tehran with four days remaining of my Iran trip. I had done it. Who survives this long in Iran in the summer? News reports said this was one of the hottest summers Iran has ever experienced. Who could have traveled and integrated themselves so effortlessly? That's a question. I had many stories to share, tons of photos from my Instagram page, and so much experience to digest that my mind and heart were full to the brim. Well done me, but this was not the end. Al-Ghazali is buried in Tus. It was only in 1995 that excavations revealed what many experts claim are the ruins of his tomb. Tus, you see, is 30 kilometers from the city of Mashhad. For many Sunnis, this name means little. But Mashhad is home to the shrine of Imam Raza, who is the eighth Shia Imam, himself a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. Peace and blessings be upon him. The Imam Raza shrine is a center of religion in Iran, and this incredibly Shia-centric city had always been a curious fascination for me. Should I go? 
I made the decision on a hot and sticky evening in Tehran while eating a falafel. Yeah, they have falafels. I booked my plane ticket and a four-star hotel, of course. I would fly the next day. I arrived in Mashhad and opened Google Maps to see what to do and where to go. I was truly modern Sufi wanderer by this point. The blue arrow led me and lost GPS signal would confound me. I knew as Al-Wazali was near Mashhad, but so were the tombs of Ferdowsi, the great Persian poet, and the mathematician and poet Omar Hayyam. This city and my time here would hit me like a mountain. But I thought that I could handle it. I had sat at Ibn Sina's feet, I had read Hafiz, two Hafiz, and I had embraced Saadi already. What could possibly happen now? Who and what is this force of Al-Wazali? I spent the first day and night in the harem of Imam Raza. I swallowed Islamic architecture like a thirsty traveler. Imam Raza's shrine is a city within a city. I am unable to describe this majestic nature, so believe me when I say that this place alone could convince you of the Persian artistic genius if you ever had doubts. I witnessed the madness and chaos of the pilgrims. They all possessed and displayed a zeal and love for the imam that I could not realize for myself. I certainly was not here for this. This became clear as I stood, a meter away from the blood of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, and my cold heart was more interested in the mirror ceilings above me and the elbows I were hitting, my ribs below. Was this madness, or was this what love requires? I felt no pangs in my heart, I felt nothing. I have never been moved by tombs or mausoleums, but standing amongst such strong believers, I felt exposed and shamed. I quickly exited the chamber, the hall, the mosque, and then the entire harem, and made my way to my spacious and grand hotel. Anxiety and fear had overtaken me. I skipped Isha prayer without shame and slept deeply. This is how disbelief overtakes and how Iblis wins. He takes one moment of weakness and confusion, brushes your hair with his fingers and comforts you with the words, Sleep, this isn't for you. I slept wonderfully. I woke up late the following morning stepped out of my hotel into a swarm of taxis and stretched out my arm and said, Tus, who wants to go to Tus? I would do it. I would place my finger on the tombs of both Fardosi and Al-Ghazali. I had delayed it enough. Within seconds, I found a driver who agreed to drive me there and back for seven dollars. Only seven dollars? He was younger than me but possessed strength and confidence in his face that comes only with absolute conviction, whether in the reality of this life or the next, something I was lacking in abundance. It was clear. On the dashboard of his taxi, he had a photo of Imam Hussein or Imam Ali's shrine in Iraq. I couldn't really tell given my fake credentials, but I found an opening to gain his confidence and smile by announcing my name is Ali. It worked. He shook my hand and immediately made me one of his own. Was I Shia? Yes. Did I visit Mashad for pilgrimage? 
Yes. Lying is easy if you think you have no other choice. But there is a choice, and it had become such a habit of mine that I found no shame in small and then bigger lies. He adorned large black rings on his fingers that he would kiss when talking about Imam Ali. I felt joy in this man's faith, but also a longing and fascination. I had been in Iran for almost two months, and I had yet to meet a young person who identified themselves as a practicing Muslim. Often I would hear the same sentence repeated, I'm not a Muslim, I hate religion and what it has done to this country. This bothered me at first, but I convinced myself later that the experience of these young people with religion, with Islam, is far from ideal. It appeared on further inquiry that the rules and enforcement of religious law into society had pushed people away from even exploring Islam for themselves. The beauty of Islam had been hidden by the garbs and pronunciations of an outward religion that did nothing to soothe and appeal to the hungry and inquisitive young mind. Islam was being used as a tool by the government to keep power, I figured, and those who professed Islam the loudest benefited the most, a theology that rewarded the most obedient and punished the least. To balance the situation, I sometimes attempted to explain my own experience to these curious and anti-religious Iranians. I would fail, but at least get their attention. How often does a European Muslim with freedom and choice choose to become religious? I was clearly educated and privileged, but I chose to do what they chose to run away from. In almost all cases, I was respected for my faith. If only I could do the same. I did not expect to be in Iran trying to convince Iranians of the truth of Islam, especially given the reputation Iran has on the international stage for being a religious theocracy. But here we were. My new friend, the caravan driver, mocked me in good humor, I hoped, for visiting Tus to see dead poets and philosophers when instead he declared, I should have been taking a bus to Najaf or Karbala in Iraq, across the border, to visit my imams. My name was Ali, and this was enough for him. My faith was contained in my name, and I was a believer who knelt before the Almighty. I wanted to correct him, but how could I when I myself did not know what I was? I had been a Hanafi and an Ismaili, a Twelver and a Sufi meddler. I was spiritual some days and on other days an orthodox habitual. The journey to Tus was long and hot. I shut my eyes and tried to rest. I woke up minutes later to music. He had switched on the radio and was listening to Nasheeds. These are highly energized melodic tunes and like most I had heard in Iran were about remembering the death, suffering and injustice suffered by the imams of the Shia faith. I never enjoyed this genre of religious music growing up, but here in Iran, the passion and hypnotic element to each nasheed is something else. There's a beat, a thud, and a slap on the chest that is in rhythm with the lyrics. Iranians love to sing, 
and if Arabic, as some say, was created for the Quran, then Farsi was created for poetry and music. One does not need to understand the language to experience the immense beauty of this ancient tongue. Iranians love to recite and sing and barely need an excuse. Every cafe I visited in Iran had a copy of Hafiz at hand. I'm not exaggerating. And every evening that I walked by the Zindarud River in Isfahan to the Haju Bridge, I heard singing. And why not? Iranians have beautiful voices. The nightingale is caged in the Persian's throat. And to sing is to let it free. The city of Tus today is nothing. The few that visit come to see where the poet Ferdowsi sleeps. He is credited, some say falsely, for saving the Persian language under the rule of the Arabs. And he went on to pen the famous Shahnameh, Nameh, a book of enormous size and influence on the modern Persian landscape. It is the longest poem ever written by a single poet, and Ferdowsi is considered the most important Persian poet in history. His tomb is grand and clearly influenced by the tomb of Cyrus the Great, an honor that should indicate the place for those he now holds on the national stage. Tus was once a significant limb in the greater Horasan region and blossomed with poets, mystics and several polymaths. Jabir ibn Hayyan, a Saudi Tusi, Nizam al-Mulk, and of course Al-Wazali himself, came out of the dirt here. Tus also found itself in the unfortunate position of being in the path of the invading Mongols. The forces of Genghis Khan passed through this garden of a city and cut, bled, and burnt the flowers and people, and then dug their roots and crushed them with their hooves of their horses. The anger and brute force of the Mongol was so great that they would have made stones bleed if they had any signs of Persian, Arabic, or Islamic influence. This was the fate of Horasan. The lamp in the east was put out with such power that it took centuries to recover, though it never returned to its former greatness. Before I left Tus, I visited a recently excavated site of a madrasa where ash is still visible from a firestorm late 800 years ago by the Mongols. Historians say what remains today is a fraction of a fraction of Tus. I would agree. Tus is a sad and somber place, and the residents carry the sweet sadness in their eyes and noble character. I circumambulated the tomb of Ferdosi, took some photographs and left. Imam al-Wazali was close by. I found my caravan parked and raised my hand to negate. It was time to depart. Let us go. To where? The tomb of Imam al-Wazali. There was a problem. The caravan leader did not know where al-Wazali was buried. While we had found Ferdowsi without trouble, it would seem that the whereabouts of al-Wazali were a mystery. But I knew where he was. I had saved his location on my Google Maps. I had even marked it as a favorite. Here, Inja, he is buried here. I had no internet connection, but I could quickly calculate that it was at most a 15-minute walk from Ferdosi. 
I pushed my phone into the hands of the caravan driver, but he refused to look. What sort of madness was unraveling? He was a man of tradition. He needed another person to give him directions and not a GPS device. I watched as he asked one person and then another, but none knew of Al-Razali. I started to question myself and whether I had been mistaken. Was I wrong? Of course I was wrong, and of course I was misguided. How could Al-Razali be buried in this place, a place so desolate and ordinary that his mere presence would have lit up the entire land if he was here? If these men who were off this land could not guide us to him, how could my phone? Each time we asked of Al-Razali, someone replied with, Ferdosi, he's here, right behind you. Madness. I'd taken this journey and put myself through this just to see Ferdosi. But Ferdosi is a giant. His tomb was worthy of a visit. I talked myself into submission and stared hopelessly at the driver. My farce was now at his limits, and I could say no more. I would return to Mashad, it appeared. Beidim, Beidim, let us go. Like a true Persian, the caravan leader had not given up. He had found a caravansarai nearby where the owner knew of Al-Azali and his burial place. I felt strength returning. He provided the driver with precise instructions, and it was indeed nearby. I was right. Of course I was right. We rushed to the caravan and jumped in. I sat in silent excitement and watched the landscape move, then rise and fall as if a camel had replaced this taxi. A left, a right, another left, and we approached the end of the road. What laid ahead surprised us both. The paved path had ended, and to continue we would need to cross a rocky dirt road, on both sides of which mud, straw, houses lined the route. Where are we? This is the path to Al-Azali. The camel tripped and stumbled, but it continued without a push. I will walk from here. No, you won't. Stay. The camel tripped again and again, but it kept on going. I looked over to the caravan leader, and he was in deep focus. I looked on. This was a road to Al-Azali. This is the moment that plays in my head. When I think of my visit to the maqam of Abu Hamid Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Wazali of Tus, I will walk from here. I jumped from a height that was human in its reach, but celestial in its gain. I have traveled many lands with his blessings and kissed many saints, but this experience was to be its own. A few weeks earlier I was in Shiraz, where I spent days visiting shrines of saints, Sufi, Sunni, and Shi'i, dervishes and poets. I had entered gardens and climbed small mountains. I had been scrutinized by security guards, and I had stared directly into the eyes of man who looked right through me in search of some divine light. This was very different. It was just me and him. No one cared who I was, where I came from and what I would do here at this desolate spot in Tus. Our worries about the outer replaced questions of the inner without us ever realizing. For me, they did so early on. I had stopped asking questions about the unseen and started to believe exclusively in the physical. 
The measurable, quantifiable, and tangible was science. It was real and progressive, with the before and a successive. The inner, the metaphysical, and spiritual, it was the unbelievable and the irrational. Think it, but don't dictate it. Muhammad on a winged horse, a police whispering in my ear. How many prophets and how many books? No Jibril would come to me. But I would be expected to read, to recite, and to feel the love and fear with no miracle but one book. The book? How convenient. As a Muslim of the post-Enlightenment period, I was a paradox of a man like all the others around me. Gertha and Locke were put in my hands, but in my case the eyes stole glances of Muhammad Iqbal and Baba Farid, and my lips searched for the best translations of the Quran to kiss. It was true I understood little, but I imagined it would balanced out. I could lock horns with an Englishman on his own turf about his history, his culture. But I could also utilize my Islam to go further back and light a torch when the European would pause in the Dark Ages. I was a Muslim who was adopted by two great civilizations, but a believer who was never taught the intimate love for him. I was a new European settler, but a highly fashionable Sufi dabbler. Al-Wazali was the epitome of it all. Read him and you're complete. I had spent two decades coming to terms with the delights of this and that, and I never steered too far from him. I had found him in the walls of mosques, so I had jumped to Iran to look at the most magnificent. I had tried, but it had not been enough. I thought my feet would be my witnesses if he were to ask where I had looked. They would speak for me and explain in detail that I had taken steps towards him every day. I walked to, into, and out of his houses like an addict. None of this was normal for someone who looked like me. I had no rags. I was no fakir, no man of God. I was not enrolled in any madrasa, but here I was knocking on the door each day to find out if today I would finally feel his embrace. Let me jump one more time, oh Allah. But this time, this one right here, make it towards you. Make it sincere in its intention and fruitful in its result. Make it forward-moving and not backward. Make it complete and sustain it. Let me land with a soft foot and give me a deep hold to survive the auspicious winds. I looked behind and the caravan had disappeared. I was truly alone. I was here. No, I was almost alone. I had seen a shepherd and his flock graze past Al-Wazali seconds earlier. But when my eyes searched once more, he was gone. He had disappeared into the horizon. I felt my throat tighten. I had jumped and now I had landed. I walked closer and noticed a fence guarding Al-Wazali. I will climb this, and I shall climb again if I slip, and I shall jump into the stone tomb and find Al-Wazali, and then I shall locate his feet, and then we shall sit and we will talk. There was nothingness around me and I wanted, and craved more of this nothing. I had no spiritual awakening when my feet touched the dusty tomb. I was prepared for this. Al-Wazali is no prophet, though some say if there were to be another prophet after our prophet Muhammad, 
Sallallahu sacrilegious, but let me finish. Al-Ghazali would have been it. Al-Ghazali was a man of great genius and piety. What he achieved in his short life shook the entire Islamic world for a thousand years. He penned guidance that would shed light onto our errors, illuminate the path to him, help us to understand the diseases of our hearts and ultimately save us from what Al-Wazali saw as our own destructive ego. Al-Wazali's life and his contribution to Islam was just that, a contribution. I did not see him as any sort of prophet, although he was accepted as a saint later in his life, and I certainly would not kneel and weep, but for some reason I had no choice. In Mashad, I had stood at the feet of Imam Raza twice, a man who came from the blood of our Prophet, I witnessed love and faith or something that makes men weak. Was it love for him? Was it strong faith or a show for no sake? I was pushed back and forth like a small boat in rough waters but possessed no anchor. Those around me were lost in their own storm but enjoyed the chaos. I saw such religious fervor and it scared me. I hid my surprise and kept observing. There were chants, screaming, and deliberate attempts to raise emotions, but how it worked. Either these pilgrims believed, or they were all fakers, I concluded. These pilgrims, young, old, strong and broken, had grabbed the grill of Imam Raza's shrine and kissed so deeply, as if deliverance would enter their hungry lips from just the contact. Puzzled and confused, I looked around to see if anyone else saw what I was saying. No, these people were believers, and they were here to reaffirm their belief. I should love and revere Imam Raza, even if he was not my Imam, I thought. I should weep out of love for a man who carried our beloved Prophet's blood. But I am not a man who weeps. I should wrestle these men and plant my lips on the topmost part of the grill. I should plant my feet deep into this ocean and exhibit my faith. I did nothing and left. I felt exposed, ashamed, and entirely insufficient to even be near these pilgrims. In my head, I repeated the words, They know I'm a chameleon, as I rushed to find the gates to exit. They all saw and felt my disbelief. I truly was a religious tourist who came just to spectate. The gold, the glass, and the mirror, the green, and the spectacular shimmer. It was just a spectacle, and how masterfully I spectated once more. I wept. I sat down by Al-Wazali and wept. My feet hung down into the tomb and I wept. My hands raised to my face, I shut my eyes and wept. I had spent a decade avoiding the words of Al-Azali because he reminded me of my faithless ways. But now I had come to him to spectate and he got me. I was not a student of Al-Azali, but why would he care? Why would he care? Why does anybody care? Where I found failure and insufficiency, my heart found an opening and an opportunity. The state of internal chaos is difficult to control. 
Some of us might not experience it ever in our lives, and maybe they are the blessed ones. I had been led to this place after two months of wandering around his houses. Al-Wazali is dead, he's long gone, and the rock and the tomb that I sat across from are nothing. Historians place the blame for the destruction and further neglect of Al-Wazali's tomb on the Mongols. The Mongol wind that burnt the gardens of Khorasan also flattened and removed any signs of Al-Wazali from human memory. For the next thousand years, no Muslim would know where he lay. I associate no intrinsic value to burial places, for they serve a limited purpose. But in the case of Al-Wazali and what I knew of his life and struggles, I felt compelled to laugh about how this had all ended for man who sought obscurity for so long. I laughed and then wept immediately. I read Surah Fatiha multiple times and sat silently again. Al-Azali and I were alone. All the minds that pondered him, all the eyes that searched for him, all the hearts that found truth in his heart had perished. And now no Mongol, Muslim, or even this lone visitor could disturb the peace of our Imam. May he bless and reward Al-Azali with the highest heaven. So why weep? Why this internal chaos? The darkness within my heart felt exposed to a light so bright that I wanted to look away. The truth held my face by the jaw and demanded, I look and let it enter. He had brought me to Horasan. He had placed me in the holiest of places amongst the most zealous. And now he did this. In this wasteland I was exposed and the truth of my own shortcomings was apparent. There was no sharp blade resting on my throat, but the truth had put a bag over my head and begun to suffocate me. We are made up of light, his light. We also possess darkness. For many years I had recognized this truth, but it had remained unchanged. Iblis had made a home in my chest, and I had guarded him like my own. This dirt in front of me had no light to mark the pure heart of Al-Wazali. There was no garden, no rose or nightingale, there was no pilgrims, and there was no one to even guard this place. It was dirt and nothing more. There is no miracle waiting to happen here, no grill to grab and kiss, no deliverance and no wailing or any rituals to perform. There is no need for a proper tomb, no need for a marble slab, no need for a mosque, no need for a city, no need for even a sign. He is dead, and he is gone. But this is not the dirt that I came to kiss. I came for nothing, but I found the grief had started to fade and felt a slow sense of hope rise inside of me. I grabbed the hand of Al-Wazali and kissed his fingers one by one. I then took his palm against my face and used it to shut my eyes, but the light kept coming in. I had jumped, I had walked, and now I just wanted to lay down. I wanted to believe this was not the end for me. 
I'm not done with you, son of Adam. He makes the immaterial material and the material into nothingness. He sent armies of jinns and angels to protect our beloved. He melted iron in the hands of Dawood. He made fire the home of Ibrahim and placed Idris in the fourth heaven. He placed the blade and removed it from Ismail and taught Solomon the language of beasts. What is within his limits but nothing? I am his ulam, I am his slave. I am nothing, but I am everything that creation witnessed. I am what Iblis rejected, but I am what will also be his end. The revival of my own Islam had begun with Al-Wazali a decade ago. And now having traveled the world, I am back to the proof of Islam to say, I believe. The journey back to Mashhad was quiet. The caravan passed an ancient fortress and then another mausoleum that some Iranian government or sources claim is the actual resting place of Al-Wazali. But this is not true. The sources are weak and no serious historian would support these claims. Al-Wazali is not anywhere here. The Mongol might have started the fire, but it was us, all of us, who had wiped his name from our hearts. It didn't matter that he was in Iran, in Horasan, in Tus, in that place alone under the desert sun. The caravan picked up speed and left Tus behind. I fell into a deep sleep as the caravan rocked me gently. Tus disappeared and the soft evening sun welcomed us. My world was at peace. Ali, Ali, I heard the taxi driver say. Let me tell you something. I woke up and looked at him with a tired smile. I have lived in Mashhad my entire life, brother. Yet I knew nothing of Al-Azali's grave being here. Be honest. You aren't a pilgrim for Imam Raza, or even a photographer who likes mosques. You're a historian or something, aren't you? To which I laughed and agreed. What difference did it make? This lie might have helped him place me he had figured me out. I wasn't here for any reason I myself knew. My journey with the caravan ended in heavy traffic, the same way it had begun earlier that morning. I was dropped off a mile from the shrine of Imam Raza. I saw the golden dome. I smiled and tightly shook the hands of the caravan driver. We both knew today was not an ordinary day for either of us. He smiled intensely and grabbed my hand to say, Khuda Hafiz, may he protect you. Thank you for listening. You can find the written version of this article on sacredfootsteps.org. We're on Twitter as S Footsteps and everywhere else on social media as Sacred Footsteps. Footsteps.